Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we started out the year on, uh, of course, on January 1st, as every year begins, but with huge news that came out of China about the outlawing of the domestic ivory trade. And that was really exciting for people because it's something that for years activists and conservationists had been wanting to for the Chinese to finally do something to cut the demand. You know, uh, the wildlife group Traffic says when the buying stops, the killing stops. And so there's this hope this feeling, this sense that in some ways the battle to save Africa's elephants has been won, that China finally did what it needed to do to stop the trade in illegal ivory. Well, of course, we know that is not the case, even though the Chinese have uh, have changed their laws and are about to implement this law towards the end of the year. Uh, we know the killing is going on. In fact, there's a whole bunch of new news reports coming out this week that suggest that the trade in ivory is as active as ever. And in so many ways, Kobus, this is just really the continuation of one of the world's most depressing stories. It really is. And so we had this idea that a big Chinese domestic ivory ban will be the, the death knell to Chinese domestic ivory demand. And it turns out, big surprise, that's not really how it works. Um, demand is continuing, um, and there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be going into attacking that demand in other ways, and particularly attacking the kind of criminal networks around the world that, that feed that demand. Now, I think new research is coming out that shows that those uh, criminal um, networks are a lot more complicated than we had anticipated before, and that uh, there's a lot, of, a lot about them that we don't, still don't know how they work. So today we're going to be talking about the, the illegal ivory trade, and we're going to focus on one very, very specific part of it. But before we get into that discussion, uh, let's kind of set the tone here. The going rate for ivory, as far as I know, according to press reports, is about $1,100 per kilo. And that right there is the driving force. There are few other products in the world that demand that much money per kilo. And it is just incredible. Uh, Save the Elephants, which is one of the the better-known environmental groups, just published a new report that said uh, the population of elephants now stands at somewhere around 415,000 Uh, I'm sorry, that's according to the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Save the Elephants is talking about how Laos has now become one of the world's centers in ivory trading and that Chinese consumers are just crossing over the border into Southeast Asia, into countries like Laos and Vietnam to buy. And it really reveals how the ivory trade has changed over the past nine or ten months, in part because of what the Chinese policies have, but yet the demand is not there. Now, there's one very interesting wrinkle in all of this, and that comes out of all places, North Korea. And North Korea is a country that certainly we don't talk about very much. It's under enormous sanctions. Of course, what we're talking about today when it comes to North Korea is the nuclear standoff between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, the president of, or the leader of, of North Korea. But a new report came out by uh, Julian Rademeyer, which is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Diplomats in Deceit, North Korea's Criminal Activities in Africa. And this was uh, written for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, which is a group out of Geneva, Switzerland. And it studies the, the illicit crime and smuggling networks of ivory in Africa by North Korean diplomats. And we are thrilled to have Julian on the show for the very first time. Thank you so much, Julian. 
Absolute pleasure. Great to be on. And uh, just a little bit of background about Julian. He's an award-winning South African investigative journalist and is also currently leading a project for the International Wildlife Conservation NGO Traffic on the Protection of African Wildlife and Ecosystems. So, Julie, I had, Julian, I had to get your, your full introduction there. Just so excited to have you on the program to talk about <laughs> this. Um, you know, North Korea is not a country that we associate with, with Africa. It's not a country that we associate, certainly with the ivory trade. Uh, what made you kind of stumble onto the North Korean aspect of the illegal shipment, smuggling, trade in African ivory? How did this come across your radar? Well, that's the thing. I mean, North Korea was was quite a puzzle. I spent the last seven, um, seven years or so looking at the illegal rhino horn trade. And a lot of that focus obviously has been on uh, criminal networks, some of them from Vietnam, some from Thailand, others from China, uh, who are driving this particular trade, um, you know, and contributing to uh, mass slaughter of, of rhinos on the African continent. You know, the, I think it's 7,100 animals that have been killed, rhinos that have been killed over the last decade. Uh, today, the African population stands at around 25,000. But North Korea was not something that really came onto my radar until about two years ago when a, um, a North Korean diplomat and a taekwondo master were arrested in Mozambique in the capital, Maputo. And they were traveling in an embassy 4x4. Uh, police who searched the vehicle found 100,000 US dollars in cash and four and a half kilograms of rhino horn. And it just seemed to be this incredibly odd story. You know, why were, what was a diplomat and a taekwondo master? The taekwondo master was later alleged to be a North Korean spy. Um, what were they doing driving around with that much cash and, and rhino horn? Um, and I worked on a report for the, the Global Initiative at the time, um, looking at a, a broader picture around the rhino horn trade, and began looking into the question of diplomats and diplomatic involvement. Um, and we'd had a couple of high-profile incidents in South Africa where Vietnamese diplomats had been implicated in smuggling rhino horn. Um, but the more I dug and going back into records over the last 30 years, back to around 1986, um, the more North Koreans turned up. Um, and, you know, it was, there was something of an ebb and flow in, in that activity. Um, and the research we've done, we identified around 29 cases of diplomatic involvement in smuggling ivory and rhino horn. And 18 of those cases t turned out to involve North Korean diplomats. Now, this was an issue that had been flagged in around 1989 by the Environmental Investigation Agency, um, who put out a report at the time suggesting that the entire North Korean embassy in Zimbabwe at that stage uh, was implicated in smuggling ivory and rhino horn. Um, and it was quite, it was a pretty hard-hitting report um, describing those activities. And, you know, it was, it was considered that that, those, those illicit activities, you know, once that embassy was ultimately shut, shut down, that those, those activities faded away. Um, but in the course of this research, we found other incidents over the years, some, you know, some as late as um, 1999, and then more recently, um, a pickup in detection of, of diplomatic involvement, one case in 2012, and then the 2015 case, and then most recently, two cases in uh, Ethiopia in September and October 2016. And so, just to, just to clarify, how much of that ivory and rhino horn uh, go to to North Korea itself, or is North Korea acting as a way station on the way to China? 
Well, that's that's one of the big mysteries. Um, you know, I, I did a, a number of interviews with defectors, some of them uh, quite high-level defectors, um, about smuggling of, of rhino horn, ivory, and other products, um, everything from, from gold and cigarettes um, to diamonds. And... Some of them did make mention of consumption of rhino horn in North Korea, but said that it was extremely expensive, which it is, um, and that it was only you know a small percentage of the population who could actually afford it. But there doesn't North Korea historically doesn't seem to have that much of them have had that much of a market for rhino horn. Um, certainly in the 1970s and 80s, there was trade to South Korea, but North Korea has always been a bit of a mystery. And it does seem that in most of these cases, these are diplomats who are on their way to China, um, traveling to to Beijing and other parts of China. Um, and, you know, according to one of the defectors we spoke to who ran a front company for the uh, North Korean government based in Beijing, uh, he would connect diplomats with Chinese organized crime groups um, or people who were looking to buy rhino horn and ivory. Um, and you know that, so, so it does seem that a lot of that trade is is destined for China, yeah, and that, that you know these are essentially bagmen. Yeah, that would be the logical assumption: is that's where the market is, whether it's in China or now, as we're seeing to countries like Laos or Vietnam, where Chinese consumers go to buy. But obviously, they want to move the ivory as a way to make money, in part because North Korea is probably the most isolated country uh, in the world. Uh, for a number of different reasons. One of them is because of these, you know, suffocating international sanctions. And those sanctions over the past few weeks have intensified as the Trump administration, the United Nations, and even China have really pushed harder in part because they want to clamp down on North Korea's nuclear program and their launching of various missiles uh, over Japan and South Korea and over the uh, neighboring oceans. So, but you make this interesting point in your in your report that said, there is a link between the intensity of the sanctions and North Korea's illicit activities in Africa. Make that link for us. What's the connection between those two? Well, I think I think it, there, there certainly is a real danger that as sanctions become more stringent, as North Korea's access to, to funding uh, is cut off, that it could lead to an expansion of these, these activities, these sorts of criminal activities, um, and a need to to find dark money, to find illicit funds to support the regime. But there's there's a dual element to all of this. Um, you know, another aspect of it is that diplomats, North Korean diplomats, are incredibly poorly paid. You know, an ambassador will earn somewhere in the region of a thousand dollars a month. Other diplomats will earn far less. So, and there's a requirement on them to pay certain amounts back to the regime in loyalty money. Um, so I think this this fulfills a dual role. One is that it it allows diplomats to um, to raise funds for themselves and to save as much money as possible, and then secondly, it provides funding that goes to support the regime. Um, and you know, certainly, I think one of the one of the uh, defectors that I interviewed said that the opportunity that's presented by going abroad is that you can try and make as much money as possible. You know, it's an, it's an opportunity to be seized upon. Uh, do you have an, an impression now about how the coming full Chinese ban on domestic ivory trade is going to impact this, or will it have any kind of impact on this trade? I'm not sure it'll have much impact on this. I mean, I think the, you know, for, for the, the diplomats primarily who are involved in this, you know, this is, 
this is an opportunity to commit almost the perfect crime. I mean, aside from the, the bungling and the strangeness of some of these seizures, um, you know, they, they're abusing their immunities in terms of the Vienna Convention. Um, they are largely untouchable. There are very few law enforcement officials who will stop or arrest a diplomat, even if they do find um, contraband items in their, in their luggage. Um, that certainly was the case with, with two, two of the incidents in Ethiopia recently, um, you know, where the individuals involved identified themselves as diplomats and were let go. Even though in one case, um, someone was found with 76 pieces of worked ivory, one of the diplomats, and in the second case, with 200 ivory bangles. So, you know, I think this is a, is a different kind of trade in a way. Um, and I think that the underground trade is certainly going to continue going on, you know, no matter what, what does happen um, with, with the, the current ivory ban. In fact, there's, you know, there's a very real danger it will push it even deeper underground. Kobus, it's interesting to hear Julian describe the situation because it reminds me of a couple of years ago when the Environmental Investigation Agency, which is a group out of London uh, that Julian referred to earlier, they also issued a report uh, about how when Xi Jinping visited Africa, the price of ivory went up simply because Chinese diplomats and Chinese officials were buying so much ivory to bring back on the presidential plane. Of course, the Chinese government denied this, uh, but there was a lot of supporting evidence, at least presented by the EIA, that suggested as much. So the North Koreans certainly aren't the only ones who are using the cover of diplomatic immunity to uh, to kind of you know take advantage mm. of buying ivory. And I just thought that was an interesting. Again, there seem to be some parallels here. Yeah, there's definitely some parallels, and there's also parallels with with wider kind of organized crime in relation to diplomats. There's been scandals in South Africa about other things. I think drugs, if I remember correctly, being smuggled by South African diplomats in in the past. Um, uh, you know, and so, so I mean, the, the question then becomes: to which extent this the diplomatic system as we know it um, is sustainable? You know, and and if if it becomes more and more kind of infiltrated by criminal activity, whether that system itself will have to be reformed? Um, Julian, what do you think? Like, uh, how how do you see the system going on in the future? Well, I think, you know, that's the thing. I mean, the, the Vienna Convention, which gives diplomats the immunities that they have and those, those diplomatic privileges, was never intended as a get-out-of-jail-free card, do anything you, you want. Um, and certainly it does allow, in certain cases, for diplomats' bags to be searched, for diplomats' baggage to be searched, if there are serious grounds for presuming that they contain articles not covered by the exemptions. But the, the cases where that does happen are extremely rare. Um, and I think, you know, in, in North Korea's case, and certainly in the case of Chinese diplomats, uh, Vietnamese diplomats too, uh, there are very few countries in Africa that have strong diplomatic ties with them who are prepared to risk a diplomatic incident uh, and, and take additional st steps against um, a, a diplomat who's, who's caught in this way. In most instances, they are... Um, generally asked to leave the country, they're not uh, declared a persona non grata, um, and it becomes a very you know informal process. Um, so that is is one problematic element of it. But I think that you know if we could encourage law enforcement agencies to uh, well a be aware of their rights in terms of the the Vienna Convention and b to to begin looking into these sorts of cases, that could could change it. I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into your research on, on the North Korean role in the African ivory trade. Are they simply these diplomats, and, and, and I'm assuming, is it only diplomats, or are there 
other actors, other North Korean actors, whether they're illegal crime syndicates, uh, corporations, or is it just diplomats we're focusing on here? There seemed, it seems to be primarily diplomats, although there are other actors on the fringes. Um, you know, there, there are people traveling with other types of passports, North Korean passports. We've got cases where um, money launderers, for instance, who are using diplomatic passports but are very loosely affiliated to okay. embassies seem to play a very key role in, in ferreting away cash, moving money around. But there, there does seem to be quite large-scale abuse of um, of North Korean diplomatic passports. I mean, to the extent that the U.S. State Department put out a warning earlier this year um, urging that North Korean officials claiming to be diplomats be subjected to strict scrutiny and that there are multiple instances where uh, North Korea has abused diplomatic privileges to to facilitate prohibited, activi- so, prohibited activities. Okay, so if it's diplomats, what exactly is their role in the trade? Are they working with African organized crime syndicates? Are they working with corrupt officials within the Kenyan Wildlife Service? Are they at that level, or are they simply buyers and transporting out under the cover of diplomatic immunity to bring it to a, a middle market where it can be sold to, to Chinese buyers? They seem to be primarily buyers and bagmen. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't seen any evidence of direct links between diplomats and poaching gangs on the ground or corrupt officials. Um, and I think that that area is something that requires much more investigation. Is how, where do they obtain this from? Um, you know, those those links are remain something of a mystery. And I think, you know, the, the, the problem we have here, I mean, when we say we've identified, you know, 18 cases over the last 30 years involving North Korean diplomats, um, those are cases that have been detected and reported on primarily at airports. Um, there's very little other, you know, inve- or very few other investigation that have gone into that. So there's a missing piece in this puzzle. Um, and I think, you know, one of the one of the defectors I spoke to summed it up um, fairly well when he said that finding people, finding corrupt people, finding people to to help out with illicit activities isn't actually that hard. You know, you go to a new country. There's already potentially a base to work from that the embassy has set up previously, um, a base of contacts. Um, you meet new people. You get to know them over coffee or over lunch. And over a period of time, you build up a relationship and then you start testing the boundaries to see, you know, are they prepared to do business? What can they get me? Um, so I think, you know, there's, they, some of these diplomats actively seek out potential business partners in that way. And, you know, so to ask you a slightly wider question, um, you work closely with, with Traffic, uh, the, the NGO that focuses a lot on on also combating demand for ivory and rhino horn in China um, through very innovative um, ad campaigns. Um, and they've in the past made the point that they feel among young Chinese the demand for ivory is starting to fall, um, you know, thanks to the, to the coming domestic ban, but also thanks to some of the work that they did, which... Uh, you know, characterizes ivory as as something old people like. Um, do you, uh, what do you think can be done about Chinese demand in the long run? Do, do we do we are we f- uh, faced with a problem of unmovable Chinese demand that will that will remain high forever, or do you, do you see that demand actually declining over the long term? I don't think it's unmovable. Um, I think it's going to 
to be you know a difficult struggle. Um, you know, I, I think you referred earlier to to Wilder cam- campaign. About, Wilder, um, you know, Sorry when the that. when yeah. the when the when the buying stops, the killing can too, um, which is quite an effective slogan. Um, but certainly, I mean, we 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 are seeing in our monitoring of of online markets and our market monitoring activity that there is demand for um, a range of things. I mean, obviously from from ivory carvings, but also on the rhino horn side, pendants and bracelets and and bangles and so on. Um, and I think that you know it's it's an extremely long and di- and difficult struggle, so you, which has to be tackled on. A number of different levels. Um, certainly, you need more effective law enforcement. You need demand reduction campaigns, uh, campaigns that are aimed cha- at changing consumer behaviour, and you need political will and support. And I think that's what's encouraging, at least in the in the ban, the ivory ban that's been imposed. Um, but it's it's you know, and I think also we've seen in recent times. Um, increasing numbers of seizures in China, although still relatively small. Um, but, you know, if you take between 2016 and uh, this this month, September 2017, uh, mainland China had around five big seizures of, of rhino horn, um, which is quite a small amount. But what was important about that is that these were proactive seizures. These were not seizures that took place at airports when a bag went through a scanner and um, rhino horn was discovered. These were seizures where police obtained information and acted on that information. And I think that's quite encouraging. So, you know, I think it's, it's very easy to make sweeping statements about China and China and the illegal rhino horn and ivory markets. But there are, you know, it's, it's a much more complex picture than that. I think that there are real efforts in some places to try and make a, make a, make a difference and make a change. That may be the case, but at $1,100 a kilo with demand still hmm. quite significant you know let me just let's just end our discussion on a you know on a yes or no question is there enough time that is the population of elephants continues to fall the poaching continues to go on can the policy making process keep up with the poachers to the point where it can actually stop the the killing well that's that's the million dollar question and you know i think that the difficulty that you have is that governments, international organizations, um, police, law enforcement agencies all move very slowly and very bureaucratically. And the criminal networks involved in this adapt very quickly. Uh, they change routes, they change methods. And their job is to get as much of that product, be it rhino horn, be it ivory, to market. Um, and, you know, they, they're deeply entrenched in many cases. Uh, they're utterly ruthless in the methods that they use, um, and and that that ultimately is what you're up against. You know, um, in in the case of rhino horn, you're looking at you know prices that are significantly higher than than ivory. So you've got a twofold struggle here, um, and I don't I don't have the answer to that question. I think that I don't think anyone really does. Um, but certainly, you know, if you're losing twenty thousand elephants a year, if you're losing over a thousand rhinos a year. And you have the population sizes that you do. Um, it doesn't look terribly optimistic. 
The report is Diplomats and Deceit, North Korea's Criminal Activities in Africa, which was written for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime out of Geneva, Switzerland. It's a fascinating report and one that really reveals a different side and complexity of the ivory trade. And I think as we heard from Julian that you know there are so many conflicting reasons as to what is propelling this. So from the fact that the diplomats only make $1,000 a month or so little, they're using this to pay for their own salaries. And at the same time, it's probably being used to pay for the, the North Korean state as they're being choked by international sanctions. So there's just no other ways for them to make money through other than these illicit activities. And of course, the North Koreans have been known for for decades of doing horrific things in, in the black market. So really, this is not surprising that they're involved in the ivory trade. Uh, Julian is an award-winning South African journalist and is also working for the NGO Traffic on uh, the Protection of African Wildlife and Ecosystems. Julian, thank you so much for taking the time and for the excellent work you've done on the report. Uh, thank you for having me on. And uh, if people want to follow what you're doing and what you're reading and writing, are you on social media at all? They can, they can kind of keep, keep in touch with what you're doing. I am indeed. Um, I'm on Twitter at Julian Rademeyer. Um, and then um, I've also got a website um, from, from the book perspective, killingforprofit.com. Killing for Profit, Exposing the Illegal Rhino Horn Trade is, uh, is the best-selling book, so go check that out. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So, Kobus, I am not sure whether to be you know, excited that we know more about the, the underbelly of the ivory trade or even more depressed that it's more complicated, more corrupt, and more vast than we had ever imagined that even the North Koreans are there involved in this trade. And, and again, I understand what's propelling this, which is, of course, is money and the demand from the China market. There's no doubt in my mind that that's the connection between it. Um, but it's... it's you know, this war is not over. And I just feel like a little bit that environmentalists and conservationists and various activists are not as vocal anymore about elephants, and they should be. I agree. I think it's, it's now is really the time to ratchet up campaigns rather than to wind them down. Um, and... You know, to, to that extent, I think Julian's work is amazing because it, it does show how complicated these networks are and how resilient they are. And I was thinking as, as he was talking about it, it's such a weird thing how from the from the criminals perspectives, they they in a way being excellent you know they, they're kind of like like workers in in a in a capitalist system they're trying to be more efficient they're trying to be more resilient they try you know they they're disrupting the industry um you know so it's, you you can describe all of their work in in weird kind of wall street terms or silicon valley terms um and i think it's crucial that we know more about how this works in order for, in order to combat it more effectively but i i agree with you the machinery is moving too slow, um, and the the rate of killing is too high. You know, so so we might really run out of time. I I'm one, and if anybody who's been listening to the show for a couple of years, they'll have heard me say this before that I think it's a, I don't think this end well. This ends well for for most of Africa's elephants and rhinos. I, I just think the demand is too too large, the the markets are too unregulated, and it's just. It's just a sad, sad story. So on that very depressing note, we will end this week's show. Uh, we'll be back again next week, and then we're here every week. But again, if you want to stay on top of some China-Africa news, sign up for our newsletter. It goes out every Monday. You can get it over 
at uh, ChinaAfricaProject.com. There's a little pop-up box that, that appears. Also on our Facebook page, you can sign up there as well at Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject. It's a great little newsletter. Kobus and I curate the top stories every week and then fling them out to you. So uh, it's a nice way to kind of, you know, just get a little appetizer of China African news if you're not really kind of that intense about it and don't want to go into it every day. So we, we invite you to get our newsletter every Monday. We'll send it out. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the show. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.